Welcome back to the backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your host and co-founder of New Club Golf Society, Matt Considine. It's been a minute. We took a little hiatus through the offseason, got our house in order, but now we are back and ready for the 2022 season. So we also kick off this new season of the backdrop with our good friend, author of one of my favorite books of all time, Tommy's Honor, Kevin Cook, joins us on the backdrop today. He joined uh, a group of our members for the backdrop live, where we had 30 or so of us uh, peppering them with questions. And that's what you'll hear on this episode. Jim Sitar takes the hosting duties, and, uh, and we all chime in on this one. You know, the, the book of Tommy's Honor, it was uh, one of our reads for the book club. And, and Kevin Cook just tells a story. It's one of those fictional history books that really uh, engages you, and, but also teaches you about that time and, and what it must have been like to be in St. Andrews, you know, when the game was, was just in its infancy. Uh, he tells the story of Tom and young Tom Morris. Many of us know a good bit about old Tom or the stories that, that have grown from, from his mythic uh, creature, but young Tom, a little lesser known and, and a, a fascinating trailblazer of the game of golf in his own right. Uh, obviously, his story tragically ends, but Kevin really illuminated on this call so much about the man, and I think you're going to enjoy it. I think it's going to connect you to the roots of the game in a certain way. Today's partner of the pod is brought to you by our friends at Golf Blueprint. Yes, Golf Blueprint is partnering up with us again this season. And they will be helping us put on the party at our annual spring meeting at Sweetens Cove this coming April. Uh, we're thrilled to be bringing our members two of the most enthralling days uh, of golf we could dream up. And let me tell you, these guys at Golf Blueprint, they dream up some crazy stuff. So we got formats that you probably have never seen anywhere else. Um, we got a ton of open play this year, so you can get at it. Treat Sweetens, the skate park that we all have grown to know and love. Um, there's, there's going to be two full days of it. So we're excited to be partnering up with golf blueprint for our spring meeting and ask yourself, this is your golf game ready for the spring. If I'm being honest with myself, I know it's not, I know my game is not, I've done all my mental mistakes here through the winter. So hopefully those are out of the way, but most of us might start heading to the range or getting some simulator time up North, maybe roll a few putts indoors, but Golfers in general, you know, most of us, we don't practice well. We don't know how to practice. And I think it's three reasons. We, we don't have a plan. We show up. Maybe I'll hit a couple of eight irons. Uh, let's go to the driver. Let's rip the big dog. Why not? Uh, number two, we don't, we put too much emphasis on our most recent round. So I haven't played in eight months, but I'm still remembering my snap hook on the 18th hole of my last round. Yeah, that sticks with us. And we kind of put that recency bias into our practice plans, trying to avoid those those things. And then number three, we misjudge the areas of our game that actually need work and attention. Well, golf blueprint, I've been doing, uh, working with these guys for three years now. And, um, my game has definitely seen strides. It's more maintenance for me. I haven't, you know, been able to put in the time. So I do short golf blueprint plans that they put together, uh, specifically for my game, the areas that, that I need to work on. And it, it just gives you that sense of intentional practice. It's like having a, a fitness trainer with you to make sure you're not, you know, going astray. And, you know, they, they put a ton of research behind what they do. They got an algorithm that helps take a lot of the guesswork out of your practice plans, but do your golf game a favor this spring. Stop trying to diagnose yourself with YouTube clips, equipment, or swing gimmicks. And get, get a golf blueprint, get a unique golf blueprint built for you 
and get out there, practice, have more fun and interest when you do it, play and get better. Now, without further ado, on to the show with Kevin Cook. Well, first off, Kevin Cook, thank you for joining us here for uh, our book club slash bag drop live. Uh, some background on this. We started doing a book club um, with Jim and, and others who just wanted to kind of get a bunch of uh, golf tragics and decent minded <laughs> people together to uh, to read some books of interest and and discuss them. So uh, we we have always done it via Zoom. And then one day Jim had the idea, let's reach out to some of these authors, see if they'll join us. And, uh, and that has become what you see here today. Um, so I, I want to thank you for, for being with us. Uh, I want to thank everybody who's on the call for being with us and understanding what a treat this really is to, to be with Kevin and uh, the author of, of one of my favorite books in Tommy's honor and, uh, and thank our benevolent host and honorable company, uh, Jim Sitar for, uh, for taking lead here today. So with all the thanks out of the way, uh, I'll now mute. Um, quick housekeeping though, reminder to everybody, please stay muted so we can hear the conversation. Uh, Jim's going to have a lot of good questions for Kevin to, to get some thoughts and conversation rolling. And then we're going to open it up to everybody, uh, orderly, of course, uh, later on. So you can ask Kevin some questions of your own when they come to mind. Um, so thanks everybody. And here we go, Jim, take it away. Great. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure to be, um, I'm seeing tonight, um, with Kevin Cook, um, it's a real pleasure to talk to someone who's such a talented writer, not just of golf, but in so many other areas, especially in, in, in sport. Um, Kevin Cook is the author of Tommy's honor, uh, which we're talking about tonight, but also 10 innings at Wrigley which is about the legendary 1979 slugfest between the Cubs and the Phillies. Um, also uh, books uh, Titanic Thompson and just out in 2021, The Burning Blue, which is the untold story of Krista McAuliffe and NASA's Challenger disaster. Uh, Kevin's written uh, extensively for the New York Times, Men's Journal, GQ, Smithsonian Magazine, and many other publications. Uh, he's appeared on TV, including CNN, uh, NPR, and elsewhere. And um, he grew up in Indiana. Uh, he lived a little bit in Chicago. Hope to ask a couple of Chicago questions as well. Uh, and now joins us from his home in Northampton, Massachusetts. So, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jim. It's good to be with you, and, and it's good to be with uh, all of you. Uh, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned uh, when we were just warming up, uh, appreciative of anybody who takes the time to read a book that I worked hard on. Well, it's, it's a rare opportunity to be able to, to, to meet the author and, and to learn a little bit more about the inspiration and, and, and all the work that went into your, to your books. And, uh, Tommy's honor is, is clearly a, a book that was, you know, very heavily researched. Um, and so we're, we're appreciative that you brought, you know, this amazing story of uh, Tom and Tommy Morris uh, to life. Um, I wanted to just kind of kick off. Um, I'll, I'll ask a number of questions here in the first 30 minutes, and then we'll, we'll open it up to the group. Yeah. Um, I wanted to kind of start off here um, and ask a little bit about the background of Tommy's honor. Um, 
it's clearly a, a history book uh, w- w- with a lot of imagination, uh, maybe 90% history and, and 10% fiction um, about the lives of Tom and Tommy Morris. Um, I wanted to ask you how you kind of went about creating those scenes um, in, uh, involving dialogue of the historic mm-hmm. figures when, of course, no one really knows exactly what they were thinking or feeling or, or even saying in those moments? I, I think it's a really good question. Uh, I prefer imagination, certainly, to fiction. Um, I feel strongly that Tommy's Honor is a nonfiction book, but it's a very good question. The, the beginning of the book in particular, the prologue, Tom and Tommy are playing. This is the first round that uh, Tommy finally realizes his dream and defeats his father on the golf course. That particular time, Tommy's youth, there is not very much documentary evidence. But what is there is backed by documentary evidence. I think maybe the one of the better examples is I have I have Tommy teasing his father saying, you know, the the whole, you'd be a really good putter, father, if if the hole were always a yard closer, which my son might as well have said to me. Now, I I could never vouch for the fact that Tommy said that to his dad on the hole that I have him saying that. But there is documentary evidence for that. Fortunately, old Tom, sadly to him, luckily for us, outlived his whole family, outlived Tommy by 33 years and spent the whole latter part of his life reminiscing, remembering these wonderful things. He used that those exact words, remembering uh, how Tommy used to tease him. Tommy was a very bold and terrific putter and teased his father. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, know the story, an utterly true story that uh, old Tom was such a suffered from the yips so much that one day a postcard came to Prestwick addressed to the misser, misser of short putts Prestwick, and the postman took it directly to old Tom. Uh, He remembered later that Tommy would tease him uh, in exactly those words. That's why those words are there. Um, Later on, uh, I think in this, in the same chapter, um, there, there is a, a seaweed picker walking up and down the beach who looks up at Tom and salutes him, waves to him. Now, uh, at that exact moment, this is where I believe imagination comes in, but I wouldn't dream of inventing such a thing. Old Tom remembered many years later how he would walk the course and play the course first thing in the morning and would see these dulse pickers, as they were called, wave to them, salute them. And, and of course, it's almost like an old joke. The golfers would look down at these people picking up seaweed uh, that, that had nutritive value, um, and uh, and look and 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 say, "What are those? What are those fools doing down there, wasting their time in this horrible weather, picking up seaweed?" And the seaweed pickers would look up and say, "What are those fools doing, wasting their time, knocking a golf ball around in this weather? They must all be crazy." Um, the the early part of the book. Um, is is based on documentation. There is documentation behind it. There is certainly some imagination there. Later in the book, for instance, if I talk about when a train took off, that's because I had the train schedules thanks to a great friend, Dr. Bruce Dury at the uh, at Strathclyde University. Um, when when we talk about shot by shot uh, accounts 
of matches. That was the result of the wonderful press that Golfomania, largely due to Tommy Morris, uh, caused. And so if you find yourself in these wonderful archives where I spent months in, in Scotland, a great, great pleasure, it's almost like finding the first box scores of baseball games. Of course, they weren't box scores of the first baseball games, but there are shot-by-shot accounts, and that's what constitutes most of the book. That's great. You know, I mean, your book is so clearly very thoroughly researched with quotations from all those newspapers of the day um, and details that really make the scenes of the book come alive. Um, you list over 50 books, I think, in your bibliography at the end of the book. And clearly you got to spend a lot of time in Scotland uh, researching this book. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that process, like uh, how long it took and how you were able to call all this material from newspapers and really, you know, make it come alive in a book? Well, it's, it's, it's a fascinating process. I always felt like the, the research is the great part of working on a book because you don't have to fill empty pages. Uh, you're just tracking down these, these marvelous things. The book really began in 1986. That was my first pilgrimage to uh, St. Andrews. Um, at that time, you could still play the old course for 20 pounds. There was a lottery already by then. But if you show up on the first tee at 530 in the morning, like I did, you can be the first group out. I was lucky enough not to play with Japanese players or American players, but with three locals named Peter, Peter, and John. And they, they will give you a benediction like this when you hit the ball into the hell bunker. Uh, they will tell you about terminology. I, I happened to hit a grounder off one tee, and, and uh, they called it a scalded cat. There's a scalded cat which I thought was a great term for a ball that's bouncing along the ground. But I said, well, where I come from, we call that a worm burner. It was the funniest thing they ever heard. A worm burner. Um, after the, but, they, but they also talked, they, they said, because I, I tend to swing hard and ineffectively. They said, oh, he swings like Tommy Morris, who was famous for swinging very hard. His vulnerable bonnet would fly off during his swing. Tommy Morris. Well, I didn't know anything about Tommy Morris. I had heard of old Tom, like so many golfers had, but I did not know about Tommy Morris. And after that, I started to keep clips because there was this wonderful family story that I was unaware of that I think the vast majority of golfers were unaware of. A family tragedy, this wonderful father and son story. And the first the Tiger Woods of the 19th century, the Tommy Morris, I found out, invented the role of the touring pro. There was no such thing. There were golf professionals like Tom and Alan Robertson, his mentor, who would fashion clubs and, and would play challenge matches and teach the gentlemen, the aristocrats, uh, lessons and arrange their matches. There was no such thing as a touring professional. Tommy was the one who invented that role. And it, it just gets more and more interesting. So I built a file over the years. And then I, at one point um, early in this century, I was running Golf Magazine. And in some sense, being the top editor of a magazine, I always felt was a little bit like being a baseball manager. The clock is kind of ticking. Uh, one day they tell you you're no longer the golf, the uh, editor of Golf Magazine. Uh, the whole company is changing hands. That seemed like a good time to, to uh, write a book. I got to spend uh, several, I mean, weeks over uh, many trips to Scotland um, while Prince, sometimes I get my princes mixed up. 
Prince William, I think, is the one who's married to Kate Middleton. They were meeting at the University of St. Andrews at the very time I was there. The St. Andrews Library is open until midnight, which is a wonderful thing. I wore out some microfiche machines looking up ancient copies of the Fife Journal and the St. Andrews Citizen. There was a magnificent library in Glasgow called the Mitchell Library, which has copies you have to put on gloves and turn the pages of a, a sporting journal called The Field. Uh, the archives at Prestwick are magnificent, where you can see how Tom Morris helped create the old the uh, the Open Championship. He took the first swing in 1860, the first swing of modern uh, uh, of of not just modern, but of major championship history, which uh, he, he foozled off to the side because his tie, the wind blew his tie up in front of his face. Bad shot. But you, you get to see contemporary accounts of those things. The archive at Royal Liverpool, where Joe Pennington, who is the club historian, walked me through and gave me the key to the, to the archive there. And you find yourself buried in these things for days at a time, forget how, how much time is going by, and find yourself back in 1860, 1870. Uh, the research for this book was one of the great pleasures of, of my life and made me appreciate every time I go out on the golf course, it's, it's interesting to know why we play 18 holes instead of 24, why the hole is the size it is, to know that Tommy Morris invented the tee box they used to tee off right from the putting green. And he told his dad, oh, your, your putting greens are going to be a lot better if you don't have guys teeing off standing near the hole. Um, all those things were fascinating. And, and I tried to put as many as possible into the book. Yeah, those details are great. And just, just imagining what it must have been like back then, you know, almost a national story anytime there were the, you know, the competitions, the battles between the Morrises and, and the Duns and uh, the Parks. And um, those matches were the sport and sporting events of, of their day. And, and the newspapers were, in effect, the, the televisions, if you were, of the day, right? Yes, right. Um, and so there had to be so many people following it, uh, thousands of people at some of these events, and, and so much money changing hands in the form of gambling, just right, you know, five feet away from the, where the shots are being. Well, it, it, it's, it's amazing. So much money. And, and Tommy Morris really was the one who made golf a spectator sport in a way that it had not been before. Uh, but you talk about the research is so remarkable to read. I'm reading through an account of the fateful match at North Berwick, uh, which is going to lead to, the sorrowful news that comes and, and Tom and Tommy race jumped commandeer a, a, a boat and go back around to St. Andrews during that match, the crowd gets so out of hand that the referee says, send some men down to the port. We've got to keep these people away. And they go and get the big, the big cables, the big ropes that, uh, that are used to tie up ships at the port and use them to hold back the gallery. And I'm reading this account and thinking that is the first gallery rope. Uh, and it's one of the many things that, uh, that we take for granted today. And it was fascinating to find out the origins of some of them. Well, you know, your book is certainly not a, a dry history, you know, instead there's 
many scenes that open up with with real drama and action, you know, rather than than rote facts, you know, and then that that action really draws people into the scene, and then you can then you can kind of bring the history and the facts to life. You know, I'm wondering what kinds of models or influences you had in this kind of writing, this kind of nonfiction with a little taste of imagination. Hmm. I, th I think narrative nonfiction, um, a lot of people would cite Capote and Cold Blood was certainly a first uh, instance of that. Mailer wrote some narrative nonfiction that brings fictive techniques to, to a, a nonfiction story. I think in terms of golf, uh, I, I was a great fan of the greatest game ever played. I remember getting a galley of it when I was working at Travel and Leisure Golf Magazine at the time. And here comes this book by a fellow that no one had ever heard of in golf, Mark Frost. Oh, who was he? Merely, merely the co-creator of Twin Peaks. Um, and he had written this wonderful story that did include dialogue from the early 20th century uh, between Francis and Ted Ray and other people. Um, but it was clearly so carefully researched that, that Frost, um, who, who, you know, became, uh, I don't know about friends, but acquaintances, um, uh, there's a mutual uh, admiration there. He was very kind to, uh, to my books. Uh, he gave a nice blurb to Titanic Thompson, which was thoughtful. Um, but I, I like his books very much. Um, and I think that a reader can trust that even if the particular line of dialogue in a Frost book, uh, it's hard to demonstrate that such a thing happened at that exact moment, you know that that is what those people meant to say. Uh, and that's probably what they actually said in some contexts. I think that's a legitimate use of it, uh, largely because if either of us were to take all of our source material <clears throat> and quote it verbatim, you would have some really dry reading. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, even if you compare transcripts um, from television or from a speech even today, um, with video, um, transcripts aren't even that accurate anymore in terms of actually capturing what someone actually said. Um, you know, in your acknowledgments in the book, you mentioned that you wanted to view Tom and Tommy Morris, uh, not as waxwork figures, but as men who lived, breathed, joked, quarreled, loved, and died in a particular time and place. Why was that important to you? I think it's true in, in sports in general that um, we get so many accounts of players from the olden days and, they're, and they're, they don't seem realistic at all, at least to me. They don't have any flaws. They, they, they don't argue. They don't, they don't fight. They don't spit. They, they don't do things that real people do. Um, the, the old Tom that we have seen often comes across in TV commercials, either as a, as a goofy kind of funny character uh, or as someone who never had a, a nasty thought, an angry thought at Willie Park, um, who never had a selfish thought when maybe Tommy is surpassing him, who, who maybe Tom should have shared the telegram, the fateful telegram that's part of the book sooner than he had. But old Tom, like many of us wanted to relish this wonderful day he's had that he hadn't uh, had for many years when he was 
actually putting well for once. I have that feeling every once in a while I make a couple in a row and I think I can actually putt. Um, I, I, I think the challenge of writing about people in other times is as much to recognize how much we are similar to them, how much we have in common with them as how much things have changed. Uh, and, and that was, that's, that's, a, that was a big goal of this book. You know, I wanted to kind of ask you about the greatness of, of, of Tommy. Um, you touched on it a little earlier, mentioning that he may have been the, the Tiger Woods of, it, of his era, because, you know, some say that, that uh, young Tom Morris, you know, he could have been one of the top 10 players in the history of golf. And, and some others may debate and say, you know, there just weren't that many serious players back then. Not, not too many people had access to golf. You know, he was one of the few kind of uh, non-gentleman class, you know, golfers of his time. And, you know, the, the British Open or the Open Championship um, was only contested by, you know, 30 or 40 or, or 50 people back then. Um, which opinion would you side with? You know, is, is Tommy one of the greatest? And, and how would you compare players from different ages? Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% on both sides. Uh, he, he, he won an Open Championship. He, he became incredibly famous. Um, early on, there were only a dozen players a, a couple of times. Um, we also need to take into account the equipment. Uh, I think his margins were very telling, just as Tiger's margins would be later. If you, if you win a major by a dozen strokes, you are something new. Uh, I, I think Tommy Morris gains extra credit for uh, inventing the lofted, the lofted shot. Uh, he used a rut iron, a lofted club. He would he would hit balls straight up in the air. They don't back up as much as they do in the movie, uh, but they uh, they do come down like a snowflake onto the green when everyone else in Scotland up until that time is bumping running the game, uh, the ball the ball up to the to the hole as you do in Scotland. That sort of invention, I think, makes him important. Uh, I, I think the fact that he made golf a spectator sport, that he was the first uh, touring professional, all of these things weigh in. I think if you took Tommy out on the tour today, uh, he would have a hard time. He would have to do some adapting. Uh, but one of the very interesting processes of making the movie that was based on this book was that Jordan Spieth, who was at the time the number one player in the world, uh, got outfitted with a, a constricting tweed jacket that you can barely uh, move around. He had a tie on, he had his, had his tam shanter on, and used hickory shafted clubs, very whippy clubs with you know, with the wooden heads, as in the day, got a perch of balls. And the first ball he hit goes like dead right. And he asked for a mulligan. Later on, he, he gets to the point where he, this is a very syrupy, slow kind of swing. And, and the, the sweet spot on the club is the size of a pencil dot. Uh, he brings that in. And Jordan Spieth finally got to the place where he could stripe a ball about 190 yards. And, and he said, after trying to swing the stuff that those guys were using, I, I got some more respect for the men back in the day. I think essentially they are incomparable. Um, it's impossible to know how Spieth would have done had he been born in 1850, like Tommy, 1851. Uh, these are questions we can speculate on. They're unanswerable, but they're fun to talk about. I think Tommy is one of the, one of the, 
several, let's say, I haven't thought about how many numbers. I think Tommy Morris is one of the 25 most important golfers there ever was. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And I, I think that, as you said, being firmly on, on both sides, you know, it really, it really makes sense to, to view the question, you know, fully, you know, and, and to, I don't know. I mean, just acknowledge that, you know, both sides that it, it's impossible really to compare, but there are ways of comparing, but just not to, in a definitive way. Right. Um, you know, you're, you're our, our first guest author who's had a book turned into a major motion picture. Um, were you able to be involved with with the movie version? What, what what was that like? I was, and it was it was remarkable. It was a, it's so different from working on a book. Uh, I co-wrote the uh, the movie, um, which is a euphemism because my wife Pamela Marin, a terrific screenwriter, was the lead writer. We worked with Jason Connery, the director, the who was hardly ever mentioned uh, without his famous father, Sir Sean, um, and had a, had a great time working with Jason. It was, it's, it's a really interesting process trying to turn a uh, book into a movie. I, I thought the actors were wonderful. When, when you write a screenplay, uh, you hear the dialogue in your head, and the actors were so good that when they said it, it sounded better than when I heard it in my head. Um, it, it is an interesting uh, process, partly because you have to think about a budget. Uh, Pamela and I uh, wrote a scene that's directly from the archives, absolutely happened, that uh, Prince Leopold, the uh, son of uh, the Queen, came to St. Andrews the first time that there had been a royal visit to St. Andrews in 200 years. Old Tom Morris teed him up, uh, and, and we had the prince coming into town behind chariots with, with white horses and, and his, his, his uh, servants were dressed up. The whole town comes up. There are, there are lights and banners everywhere. And uh, it, was a, it was an excellent scene. And it has a funny ending because the prince hardly hits the ball at all. And old Tom has a, has a good line after that. Um, says it's, it's very disloyal to stand so close, hoping that you will pick up the uh, prince's golf ball. Uh, so we've got this wonderful scene, and Jason said, uh, I like it very much, and if, it were, uh, if we were to film it, it would cost more than the whole rest of the movie combined. So the prince, Prince Leopold, does not appear uh, in the movie. They, they did have miraculously, they shot for 33 days, and it rained once. This is Scotland. It rained one day, so Jason felt like someone is the golf gods sometimes look favorably uh, on you. Um, he, he, uh, I, I thought the swings, Jim Farmer, the, the uh, golf uh, professional emeritus at the RNA, worked with both actors. Neither, neither uh, Peter Mullen, who plays old Tom, nor Jack Loudon, who plays Tommy, had swung a club before. Uh, Jack was, you know, Jack's a Fabulous, charismatic. I think he's going to be a superstar. But during the the discussions, the auditions, uh, Jason said, are you a golfer? Oh, my whole life. Because if you're an actor, that's what you say. If they ask, can you ride a horse? Can you break dance? You say, heck yes. Done it all my life. Well, he'd never swung a club. Uh, Jim Farmer taught him a swing that was not what I admire about Farmer, they don't, they're not all the same swings. Willie Park's swing is more muscular and different, uh, but they are utterly different from a modern swing with modern equipment because you have to wait forever 
for that hickory shaft to finally unspool and bring the club head around. Um, I think they're really good swings. Um, some purists quibble here and there, and I think that's legitimate. Uh, nobody's ever going to be entirely happy. I'm not entirely happy with the movie, but it was such a marvelous uh, experience to be part of it. Well, in terms of golf movies, I mean, it's, it's so rare for, for Hollywood to turn its attention to, to something like golf. It, it, it is a gift um, to have the, the movie made in the first place, you know, to, to, to entice people, um, you know, to learn more about Tom and Tommy and, and their era of golf and what it was like back then. And hopefully, you know, that, that does spur people to, to read the book or, or, or to go into their own, you know, ways of learning more about the origins of the game. Um, I thought that that was, you know, really one of the great takeaways of the movie. Um, you know, of course, movies are never as, as good as the books that they're based on. Um, they just can't be. To say. <laughs> and, you know, there's other ways of storytelling for movies that, you know, they have to do certain things that, that books really can't do. And, you know, as you said, with Prince Leopold, it, it, it doesn't cost you any more money to, to, to write that scene in the book, but it costs a lot more mm -hmm. to make it in the movie. Um, where do you think the movie missed the mark a little bit? I, I actually like the movie very much. I think I think uh, I think it works. Um, I love the emphasis on uh, Margaret, uh, and and the, there there are women in this movie as there are not in many uh, uh, golf movies. Um, uh, I think that um, before uh, we leave the topic, I ought to let me draw back just momentarily and talk about one one thing that you do in a movie that you would not do in a book. And that's in the movie, Tommy bursts into the RNA to challenge the gentleman. Uh, and Tommy did not, that did not happen in, in real life. But I think it's totally legitimate in the film because that represents, the movie can't go on for eight years. It represents what Tommy achieved in turning golf from a game for the aristocrats you know, they, they thought their amateur tournaments were far more important than the Open at that time. Tommy would not have been elected. Old Tom never set foot inside that grand RNA clubhouse. He would not have been allowed. Had Tommy actually burst in there, his dad would have lost his job in no time. I think it's legitimate because it represents Tommy's taking the game from these amateur aristocrats and turning it into a spectator sport that was all about who plays the game the best. Uh, and, and that's why I think it's true to him and to the history of the game. Um, so uh, I think it's, it's certainly a, a different craft uh, and, and one, one job of a screenwriter adapting a book even uh, uh, and even if you don't have the same loyalty I have um, to the book, is is that you try to really level with your viewer or your reader and make sure that you don't do anything that you don't think is fair. I think you one could quibble with you know what how in the world could you have Tommy busting into the RNA in a movie? Uh, I think it's legit, but it's arguable. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, that reminds me, you know, I. I really admire the way that you wove all, all that sociological information into the book, uh, the, the, the acceptance of social status in, in Scott's culture. You know, it, that's, 
different from the way like us Americans kind of understand or, or strive, you know, to, to, uh, improve ourselves or our conditions or, you know, make, make better lives for our children. I mean, you see that through old Tom and, and, and young, of course, but, but how limited these characters are in terms of, you know, making a better life for themselves. It, it really came, um, to life when you were describing where, where Margaret came from, um, that, that coal town that's, that's West of Edinburgh and the conditions of that town. I, I mean, it, it's really hard to fathom nowadays. It's true, and and that that's an instance that that reminds me of the great Doc Malcolm. And I think every book needs a friend. Uh, Doc Malcolm, uh, who, who was a brilliant man that we lost in two thousand eleven, uh, an academic, uh, a scientist, but also a, a great golf scholar. He wrote a book called uh, Tom Morris: The Colossus of Golf, uh, that came out the year after mine. And one of the most of what I learned about Margaret came from his work that he so generously shared with me when I was there. Uh, I mean, later on, we became such friends that he and his wife, uh, Ruth, a terrific uh, artist, they loved New York City. They would come and live in our place in, in New York City, and we would go over and live in their place in uh, St. Andrews. But his book was not gonna come out until a year after mine did. Nonetheless, he shared everything that he knew about Margaret with me and, and readers were able to find out not in his own book, but in mine. And, and that is what a generous uh, person Doc Malcolm was and how devoted he was to the facts. All he cared about are these the facts. Let's get them out there. Uh, I, I will forever be grateful to him. It's a great story of of of, of research um, and and friendship as well. You know that comes together and that shared respect for for history and and for the game. Um, I I wanted to just pass it over to to Matt Considine who has a a question. Then we'll 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 open it up to the group. Kevin, your uh, description of uh, uh, Tommy walking in and challenging uh, the gentlemen amateurs. Um, that that resonated with me. I know that was the the scene in the movie, and but but just the character of of Tommy being this uh, innovator and challenger and and not afraid to be himself. Uh, I I just really love that throughout the book. And uh, one the golf societies of Scotland and Ireland are the inspiration for this club that you're you're talking mm-hmm. to tonight. You know that's where we got our our uh, initial inspiration from. Um, in particular, the new golf club. Of St. Right. Andrews, that's right where, we, where we where we get our namesake. Where right? Tom used to, old Tom used to sit in a in a easy chair and look out the window at the uh, at the 18th fairway. So, so I, I wanted to ask you uh, about young Tom and old Tom, both of them, their their involvement in the creation of the new club. Because, as I understand it, they named themselves the new club because the old the old club was down the street. That's the the Royal and Ancient. Uh, what what was Young Tommy, what, what was his um, involvement in it? Um, I heard there was rumors that it might be the uh, the Tom Morris Club had they, they wanted yes. to put their names on. Yes. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about that, and then also share with us your favorite spot at the new club. A lot of us on this call tonight are, are going to be there in May. And, oh, how terrific! And we're going to the be, uh, the yes, it's absolutely true that that they're starting this new club down down the uh, 
the uh, road down the fairway. Uh, and uh, they wanted to call it the Tom Morris Club. Tom, Tommy's gone by now. And, and Tom is the grand old man of golf, as they called him. And, uh, and he, he said they were welcome to do what they chose to do. But if they named it the Tom Morris Club, he would never set foot in there. Uh, he wanted it to be called the new club, just as the new course uh, at uh, St. Andrews, which is a wonderful layout. Uh, and if you're when you're there, I hope you all can, can play the new course, uh, maybe as well as the old. Um, uh, of course, the, that's where Tom uh, had his had his fall down the stairs uh, that uh, that, uh, you know, he, he had lived a very, very long and happy life. He loves what I loved. The, the place I love most about in the new club is, is when you go out and it's unbeatable. There's a, there's a wonderful place to eat and you have a nice pint there. Uh, but then you turn to your right and you see the wonderful panoramic windows and you can watch, you watch people tee off at, uh, uh, at, uh, 18, the Tom Morris hole. They finally named that after him and, and he was too late to stop it. Uh, and, and, and watch the players play as they're all, you know, their hearts are in their, in their chests. Um, to, to sit there and, and the sun coming through, the afternoon sun really warms. And you can re remember, you can imagine what it was like for him. He was an 80-some-year-old man sitting there. He loved to sit in the sunshine where he felt a little warmer and watch the players come in making their, their best efforts on, on his old layout. Um, uh, Tommy, Tommy was, was not a club member. Tommy belonged to the Rose club. Uh, but Tommy was, was there, uh, in his, you know, brief period, but, uh, later comes the new club and Tom's time there. And what I like, I always feel his presence in there and it's a wonderful place to be. I mean, I think it's the best place you can set foot in when you're there to, to spend some time, uh, and and have a pint and watch talk golf and see the list of club champions uh, and uh, uh, and look for David Malcolm's name uh, and it's 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 honestly one of the best places on earth I believe for a golfer. That's great. We're we're excited to see it um, and to kind of see where all this. Um, action and history, you know, from your book actually took place and to walk those same, uh, steps as well. Something mm -hmm. that, you know, is very unique to, to golf. Um, want to open it up to, to the group. Um, you take turns here. Uh, just remember to unmute yourself and, um, let's hear from, uh, the attendees. Hey, Kevin, this is, uh, Philip here in, in Chicago. Thanks for taking the time to, uh, to, to hang out with us this evening. Um, you know, I think you had mentioned in our chat here that, right, it's, it's challenging to kind of compare and contrast, uh, uh, you know, old Tom and, and, and young Tom along with the players of today. But, um, you know, I always think back to, uh, you know, how would our founding fathers here in America look at uh, the country we have today? So I'm going to ask you just, you know, how would old and young Tom look at the game as it is today. And, and, um, you know, you're obviously way more educated in this stuff than, than we are. How, how do you think they would, they would feel about where the game of golf is in, uh, 2022? That's a great question. I think they would generally be thrilled that it's a worldwide sport. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that every golf course can trace its lineage 
to old Tom. Uh, the the Scottish diaspora, the the player, the the designers who came over here and founded the courses here in the in the Northeast, uh, Ross and Mackenzie, and and they all trace their lineage right back to old Tom. Uh, I think they would be thrilled. I think Tommy in particular would really like the idea that the money is as gigantic as it is. Uh, of course, they'd be amazed by television, by the size of the galleries, um, by the equipment. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if old Tom, uh, of course, Tommy also made some golf balls in his time, not very many. Um, those, those were gutties. I wouldn't be surprised if old Tom might might join some of us in the belief that the golf ball itself is out of hand, that uh, that you might need to back that off a little bit and increase uh, shot making uh, and and save some courses that are being outdated by by Bryson, who another person I I love to watch Bryson the Chambeau play. I I love to see a 350 yard drive as much as anybody else, but I wouldn't be a bit surprised if. If uh, someone like old Tom in particular thought that uh, that the ball above all uh, had gotten too lively. Hi, Kevin. This is Lonnie from Minneapolis. Thanks mm -hmm. for uh, being here tonight. Really enjoyed the book. Uh, um, echoing kind of what Jim said earlier, really enjoyed just kind of the descriptions of what life was like, um, you know, for not only, you know, old and young Tom from the, for the family and just for, for the people who, who were, who were there, even just in the background. One thought I had just kind of reading it is, do you think young Tom would have been as been able to, to kind of assume this role as such an awe-inspiring figure in his own short lifetime? If he grew up in the age of featheries, or do you think it was really, you know, part of the equipment change that that he uh, was living through, just with the emergence of the gutta percha ball, uh, allowed him to 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 kind of become assume that role? That's that's a very significant thing, and I, I think it's important. What I would guess is that an even more important change that allowed Tommy to be the player he he was was what his father did to change the course itself, to, to take the what we call the old course and pull out all what we call gorse, they call winds, to pull out all those thorn bushes that used to, to make the fairway so narrow that the only way to play was the old time way, which I'm gonna, I'm gonna tack from here to there, I'm gonna keep it straight, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play a relatively safe game from point to point. Now, old Tom spent his spent decades pulling out that gorse, as we call it, and widening the fairways, partly so that, that the play went, because there are more and more players uh, every year. So the play went faster. That's another important reason that, that you don't have guys playing, uh, playing both ways, both playing it to one hole and, and the ball is whizzing over your head as the other guys uh, play the other direction on the same hole. Uh, double greens help make a difference in that way. We, we come up with a layout that goes out and, and um, back in. I think it's, it's that, that Tom's work on widening the fairways was what enabled this crowd-pleasing, swashbuckling, much more go-for-broke style of play that Tommy played. Couldn't have done it on the courses that, that were on the fairways that were as narrow as when his father began to play. 
Um, so it's certainly the ball makes a difference. Tommy understood the gutty. Um, I've, I've hit gutties. I, I hit one feathery one time. I can't hit either one of them, but I can't hit a Titleist either very well. Um, so, so for personal experience, I have nothing to say on that. Um, but I, I think the, the gutty was, I mean, the gutty is, is like a dead, it's, you hit it and it goes no place. It comes down and plonk. But it was more standardized than than some of the featheries. Some of the featheries were pretty lively, but then they would get waterlogged. It's it was the game was becoming more predictable. And so maybe maybe the point is that Tommy has a somewhat more predictable ball, even though it's a pretty dead ball. Crucially, I think he had a wider fairway to shoot for. Yeah, Kevin, I'm going to throw throw another one out at yeah. you. Um, I'd also love just to, to you know, obviously, we, we, you know, our, our society is excited to, to go over Scotland and experience Lynx golf um, for, the, for the first time as a, as a society. But um, I'd love to just kind of get, get your thoughts on, you know, the, the kind of architecture um, and, and, and architecture as it's kind of coming back to, you know, just like a more, a more natural mm-hmm. approach here in the States. And, um, you know, and, 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 you know, if, if, uh, you know, if old Tom and young Tom were alive today, you know, what, what types of, you know, how would they approach architecture, uh, here in the States and, and what, 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 what would they think about, you know, how, how the, the, we've evolved, from the eighties, nineties, two thousands to these long, big courses with lots of rough to now it's much more of a, a natural and use the terrain as it naturally uh, was made out. Yeah. I, I think they both love to play band and dunes. Um, I, 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 uh, I think they would love to play links golf. Uh, I'm a, a huge fan of my fellow Hoosier Pete Dye, uh, who always made a point to give credit to old Tom, those railroad ties, that, uh, that are the wall of the bunker that comes directly from old Tom uh, through Pete Dye. Of course, Pete Dye bulldozed a great deal of land. Uh, they, that style uh, leads to some really interesting target golf um, and, and, and leads somebody like uh, uh, Tom Fazio to build courses that I mean, Fazio told me one time, if you win, if you, if you had got enough money, we can build a golf course on the moon. Well, I, I'm not sure I want to play that golf course because it would be so artificial. And I love the Renaissance back toward Lynx style golf, um, partly because I, I like a golf course that doesn't have any trees. That's helpful. Um, but it is so much more like how the game evolved. I mean, I mean bunkers, bunkers, evolved because they're behind a knoll where sheep took took shelter when the rain is pelting down on them and after enough sheep are taking shelter there enough days in a row they they take the grass away you're down to to sand well tom will take that and turn that into a bunker um i think the more natural the better um um, there, there are some magnificent golf courses. I think the the whole renaissance um, that that uh, uh, has has come in the last 20, 30 years uh, is is a really wonderful way to salute old Tom and and every other architect who can trace his his uh, his tree all the way back 
And it's a very thorny sort of uh, gorse bush all the way back to Tom Morris. Hey, Kevin, I've asked this on a few calls. When, when we get um, an author that joins us uh, of, a, of a book that I, I thoroughly enjoy, I, I've asked them um, what, uh, what books they enjoy. Uh, and, and specifically if for this group of us that's going to Scotland, is, is there other books about uh, golf in Scotland that maybe were an inspiration for Tommy's honor or just ones that you've enjoyed personally right. or gifted to others? So Tom Coyne writes well about you know, the, a golf course called Scotland and uh, Ireland, and uh, the new one is the U.S. Uh, of course, I like, I like all of Frost's books um, very much. They're not about Scotland. Um, there, you, you can you can go way back to Tullock. I, I found it fascinating to read Tullock's biography of Tom Morris. Now it's just kind of slow going, uh, but but to to dip way way back like that um, and and um, uh, I mean the real Mackenzie's book is wonderful. The Spirit of St Andrews. Uh, I, I think I think that would be that would be one to to point to for sure because because he he really shared old tom's spirit and that town's spirit i mean it's 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 funny we talk about the evolution of the game the evolution of the town as you will all see i, I think we all have to be concerned we don't want we don't want st andrews to become the myrtle beach of scotland as as wonderful as myrtle beach can be it's getting Americanized to some degree. That big old hotel, um, it looks like an American hotel to me. Uh, and, and it's very fine in its way. Uh, the, the fact that it now costs hundred plus pounds to play the old course. These are the ways that we have Americanized the birthplace of golf. And I think it's still got its spirit, but I'd love to hear, I mean, we should check back in. I'd love to hear what you all think uh, when you get back, how much of the spirit of, of 1860 and 1870 uh, remains at a, at a place where uh, so you know it's overrun by people like us who want to partake of it, and and I just hope when you when you play the courses, I always felt it's so important not to be that American golfer, that loud guy who plays so slowly because he thinks he's on TV. To hit the ball, pick it up, hit the ball and go and hit the next one and praise the other guy and look at his shot and uh, and go from there. That, that's, yeah, go ahead, whoever's got a question. Yeah, so I was just going to um, kind of pick up on that, what what Phil was saying and, and, and what Matt was asking. There's another question here um, from Jim Hartzell, um, who has uh, taken many trips to Scotland to play a lot of the uh, more hidden gems, um, you know, off the beaten path outside of um, St. Andrews and Carnoustie, et cetera. Um, he's wondering, you know, what, what do you, what your impressions were of, of Winterfield golf club, the, the course where a lot of the scenes um, were filmed um, for the movie version. It, it, it seems to be the kind of course that, that maybe preserves a lot of that spirit. Um, that you're talking about. It does. It's so coastal and, you know, you, you get in the wrong place and you're suddenly on a beach and you don't even know where the golf course is anymore. Uh, and, and the wind, the wind is knocking you over. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's nothing like the old course, of course, in terms of its layout. I, I didn't play it. I was just walking around. Um, I, I have, oddly enough, and I don't know if any of you will ever get to Anstruther, 
home of the best fish and chips place on the face of the earth. It's you just drive. It's about a half hour uh, from St. Andrews over over the hills. Uh, but there is a little. It's also, I mean, I don't know how much extra time you will have, but any little town you go to, there are these old, little old nine hole courses where you'll find a stone wall right in the middle of the fairway or right behind the green. And, and your ball is up there. You got to bounce the ball off the stone wall, try to ricochet it onto the green. Uh, Ann Strother has the most difficult par three I've ever played. I think I made at nine or something like that and then played much better the next time and, and made a, made a triple uh, it's, it's a par three just hanging on the edge of a cliff like 235 yards there's some impossible holes all over the place um, but the little courses that you never heard of that every little town has there's a town called Killen right in the middle if you're if you're going across to Glasgow uh, that that has a marvelous little uh, little old uh, course so that's one of the great pleasures and, and we Americans, we were always so tight for time. If you ever get enough time to go to a little town like Anstruther or Killen and, and play the courses there, you know, just down the road from St. Andrews, Kingsbarns is magnificent. Uh, it's, it's a little American-ish, it seems to me, uh, but a spectacular layout uh, with incredible views. And the other end of the spectrum is these wonderful little nine holers that you're, you're probably going to have to hit your ball around several cows. Uh, and, and that's interesting too. I've heard a couple anecdotes from uh, people who have been fortunate enough to, to play a lot of golf in St. Andrews about, about the cows and <laughs> how you actually have to uh, be very respectful and uh, yes. give them their space. Cause they could actually be pretty, pretty dangerous animals. And there's a free drop if you get in the wrong place right after they walk past. Yeah, I think Tom Coyne says somewhere in his Scotland book that if people are worried about what what our dogs may do on golf courses, they have to remember <laughs> that uh, the history of golf has been um, has had uh, other animals, uh, you know, contributing yes. different things. To the one problem, the one courses. problem they don't have there is the Canada geese. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, any other questions here? Hey, Kevin, I have one more question. Um, kind of reading through, um, and I apologize for, for young Tom's opponent's name. I can't recall it, but I remember it was the marathon kind of winter you know, snow-filled map. Yes. Uh, so, so with that, you know, I, I remember you, you mentioned you, know, you got six strokes around or you know, something like that. When did the division between the kind of, you know, golf professional and, and the amateur, you know, when, when did those paths converge in terms of the top tier players, you know, playing at a similar, similar level of competitiveness? It, it's coming right in this period. I mean, this is a guy who, uh, who fancied himself a top amateur, although he wasn't really one of the, the best uh, amateurs of the time. And that was when it was, it was really more like a Titanic or Sam Snead setting up a match um tommy was an infinitely better player but if you get enough strokes then you're going to be uh you're going to be uh competitive uh so i mean i think it's that's an instance in which the old cliche about the matches won or lost on the first tee uh when you decide uh, what the uh 
what what you're spotting the other guy or what he's spotting you um, is is decided. I, I think we are very close in this period to the time when those those matches may happen. Uh, Phil Mickelson may play some of those matches much later. We just don't hear about them. The ones the ones that matter, the ones that are on television, the ones that we read about. Uh, on websites and, and in newspapers and magazines uh, are the ones among the finest players in the world. And the, those are the tour pros. All right. Well, this has been great. Um, thank you so much, Kevin, for um, joining us tonight and, and sharing all of your insights. It's been a real pleasure learning more um, about the inspiration for the book and, and how it um, all came together and uh, we're, very appreciative of your time and um, hope we can join again um, after we've been to Scotland and uh, we can uh, share some of our stories as well. Thanks for reading the book. I'd love to hear it, hear about it when you all get back, have a magnificent time when you're there. And, and Kevin, I'm going to talk directly to those that, that didn't read the book and join us tonight, but are going on the, the trip. I've decided after this conversation that Tommy's honor is required reading to get on the plane. You have to show your vaccination card and you have to show Tommy's good honor. Thing. Very good. Your Tommy's honor card. The bind oh, has terrific. to be broken. You know, we'll, we'll make sure it. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for being with us, Kevin. Thanks everybody. See all you guys right. soon. Bye now.